0: Our topic today, the future of work, is being offered by Jim Ware and uh, Charlie Grantham. These guys have been around uh, Cornet for a long time and are very popular speakers. We brought them in from California and Phoenix for you today. These guys are futurists, and um, the word futurist allows them to be whatever they want to be today because we don't, can't tie them down to anything. They can just tell us a little bit about what looks, what's happening around the corner that we can't quite see yet. And so I'll let them do the introduction, tell you about their qualifications and what they've been doing. Uh, I understand this is their uh, eighth week or something on the road doing this presentation. So I'll turn it over to them. And which one's going to kick us off here?
1: Yeah, I'll do All the All right, Charlie, fight. do the kickoff. Um, I think this was advertised. Is this working? Advertised as a review of the Cornet 2010 project, which Jim and I played a, a role in. But that was three or four years ago. So what we thought we'd do do today is actually present that as a basis but more information and more research and more case studies that we've been doing for the past three or four years so you're really up to date. So the future of work is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Different people are doing different things. It's difficult to find one organization or one location that's doing everything so what you're going to hear from us today is a whole bunch of stuff from a whole bunch of places. And uh, we would like to make this as interactive as possible. So ask us questions, offer comments. Uh, We're going to try to close it down a little early so we've got more time for Q&A. But feel free to jump up and say something when
2: you are so moved. So Jim's going to start us off with a little fun. Let let me just emphasize what Charlie just said. We really do want to make this a conversation. I'm fond of starting off our sessions by saying, uh, by quoting Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, some of you may have had studied him in college or something. But Kant once said, "A lecture is the process by which the notes of the student become the, uh, the notes of the professor, become the notes of the student without passing through the minds of either one." And we really don't want that to happen. So please argue with us, suggest things. We, we enjoy the, the the learning that takes place from conversation. Now, as <coughs> excuse me. Uh, where, what did I do with the the clicker? <laughs> I think it's, we've been doing this for too long. Here it is. Okay. Uh, is anybody here in the room f- from Intel?
1: No? Good. 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 Okay, show <laughs> <Because> the film. <laughs> we, just,
2: we just recently stumbled across this really interesting little little view of the inside of Intel. You've seen it? Uh, we'll get there. Helps to turn it on. Okay, uh, Chris, if you could click. And we hope the sound will Hi, work. Your name
3: is? Don Beatty. I'm a Senior Marketing Manager in the Consumer Client Services Group at Intel. You're going to take us through Intel, is that right? That's right. First of all, uh, Don, I love what you guys have done with the color here. I think the gray works very nicely with the gray. <laughs> works well with the grayish blue. <laughs> oh, my God.
0: really try to keep a very similar working environment basically everyone at intel it's good it makes
3: people feel that they're all basically the same that there is no individuality there's no hope there's no sense that life has possibilities look at h10 is that what you'd see in a parking garage
1: (laughs) where exactly you are we try
0: to
3: mark the general areas so you may tell a coworker i'm over by pole h10 right which is better than one of those pretty flowers near the window i'm near those <laughs> I'd like to introduce you. B10, this is C10. C10, B10. I think you two should have lunch together over at C9 today.
2: <laughs> that gets a little close to home, I think, for too many people. Uh, we enjoy starting that way. Okay. It's not working. You're going to have to be my designated clicker. We've got to get to the next slide, is what we've got to get to. Okay. All right. Now we'll get a little more serious. What we'd like to do, as we both suggested a couple of minutes ago, is have a conversation with you about the future of work and the workplace. But I do want to stress this is not just about place. In our, in our view, in our, our world, uh, the work environment is both social and technical as well as physical. And that will have more meaning in the next couple of minutes. Uh, but we want to talk a little bit about how the nature of work itself is changing, why it's changing, what some of our views and visions are of the new office landscape or the new work landscape, uh, and, uh, and then some of the implications for all of you. And we'll kind of end up there and hope we can have a, a pretty wide-ranging uh, conversation at the end. Charlie? Um, is it, okay. How many of you know
1: who Buffalo Springfield was?
2: Look at that. we got a mature group here.
1: Okay. Us boomers. Something's happening here, but it's not exactly clear yet. But it gets a little bit clearer every day, so we stole that line. Our basic assertion is, is the world economy is the very early stages of a fundamental transformation probably of the magnitude that we witnessed with the Industrial Revolution. And it's happening at probably four times faster than other transformations have taken place. That means everything's gonna change. Where we live, where we work, how we learn, how we play, everything. The little story I like to tell is to think about yourself living in Southern Europe in the year 1485, and you hear this rumor about this guy named Gutenberg that's just invented this printing something or other. Could you of that time thought about what the implications of that technology was going to have on your life and the generations to come. I'd suggest to you it would have been very, very difficult to understand what was coming with that revolution. We believe we're at about the same place with basically internet technology. Our belief is if you do this transformation, do this evolution right, you can take about 40 percent of the cost out of supporting your workers. So, let's say that it cost you $10,000 to support a worker for one year. And you can reduce that down to $6,000. How many workers do you have? What's that going to do to the bottom line of your company? And when we first started this, that number was 30%. And we thought we were being fairly uh, optimistic. And we pushed it up to 35 and we pushed it up to 40 Probably going to push it up... To 45 because the data that we've been collecting for the past five or six years indicates that's a rather conservative number the people that we've been working with are managing to take even more cost out of their operation and it goes to the bottom line so the question we would pose to you if that's the case and we go in and talk to a ceo and a cfo and present this why would they not want to do that because in many cases companies make decisions not to make this transition to the future, so just kind of hold that one out there. We've got some case studies, and we'll come back to it. But you can start scribbling on a napkin. Forty percent. Put some numbers behind it. So, corporate agility. You know, we had to get the plug in, and no, we don't have books here for you folks to buy. Um, <clears throat> it was published a couple of well, about a year ago now, almost, almost a year ago, and. It really details how businesses have to respond to these three imperatives. That's not to say that there aren't more challenges out there in the environment, but we wanted to focus on these three because they they sort of key off on how you develop a strategy. Obviously, reducing your operational cost and moving fixed cost to variable cost. So what are the three biggest fixed costs you have in your business? IT. IT, people, and real estate. Now, what about if you can move that to a point where you can dial it down and dial it up as fast as you need to, given what's going on in the business? That's the thought there. Closing the talent gap, how many folks here have problems recruiting and keeping the people you want? Oh, come on. Come on. Let's be they don't honest. want to admit it. Just <laughs> be honest. Well, that's a big issue. That's a big issue today. It's going to be a bigger issue in the next three years or so. Uh, the numbers that we're looking at says in the United States, there's probably going to be a net shortage of knowledge workers of something like 10 million people within 36 months. That means there are going to be 10 million jobs that basically will go unfilled unless something is done. I see some folks shaking their heads out there. So here's the challenge. The next time you're in your little home community where you live, call a nurse you find if you can find one. It's, it's getting to be uh, a, a real issue. And then lastly, this institutionalizing innovation is how do you create new products, enter new markets, and do it faster than your competitors. Now, the challenge for executives is you've got to be working on all three of these things at the same time. You can't just do one and not do the other two. You won't stay around
2: very long. And we're going to come back to what survival means in a few slides just want to add one thing about the book. It's really a compendium of of the research we've been doing and the work we've been doing with a number of different organizations around the country, uh, mostly in, in North America, uh, over the last four or five years. And I do want to, because I know there's some people here from both Herman Miller and Jones Lang LaSalle, I want to acknowledge the support that those two organizations gave to this research. There, the, I'm going to tell you a, a quick story in a moment that's out of the book. There are a number of other uh, case examples in the book. We tried to really... Chronicle the journey, I guess, that many organizations are making, trying to achieve corporate agility. But I do want to thank particularly Jones Lang LaSalle and, and Herman Miller for their their help in in uh, producing the book. And I also want to give them both credit because they didn't tell us what to do or what stories to tell or what not to tell. There was no censorship, no no oversight, really. But they just they trusted us, and they were they were part of the process. And some of their stories are in the book, as well as as well as others. Uh, but I do want to try to pose the problem that Charlie was just addressing. The challenge of trying to meet these three business imperatives with three very different professional disciplines, all trying to tackle it, uh, uh, tackle different components of it at the same time. So consider this. You're responsible for real estate management in a large multinational firm that's struggling. This organization, in fact, has just experienced 12 consecutive quarters of red ink. Really hurting. The CEO tells you talent management is a priority because they're having trouble retaining people. Some of the best people are leaving. They're having trouble attracting and retaining people. At the same time, the CFO says you've got to take 50% out of your real estate cost. You're concerned, rightly so, because you're a professional, that uh, that portfolio realignment will result in tremendous dissatisfaction among key employees. How do you deal with those two objectives simultaneously? You ask what? You ask the CFO where he got the 50% Where did he get the 50%? He probably got it from the CEO. That's a good start. Uh, we're not going to quiz you on this right now. We won't quiz you on it at all. But hold, hold the problem in your head if you can. We'll come back and talk about what they actually did and what happened uh, towards the end of the, the, the conversation. But we just want to suggest that this is, this is the dilemma. I think many of you probably can relate to this very directly. John, I think you're going to pick this yeah, up Yeah,
1: th- this is, where do people work? Uh, this, These numbers here uh, came out of a survey we did first in 2002, and we've replicated it since, and the numbers change a little bit. But this is actual data. This isn't speculation. Uh, this is actually what's going on, that people only spend about 35% of their work time in their assigned corporate facility. How many of you have ever walked down the Cube Farm, the halls, and counted the number of, empty cubes and empty offices. Just do it, it's a little test, but that's about 35 percent of their time. These are knowledge workers, this isn't touch labor at an automobile assembly plant. And then they're spending about 35 percent of their time at home, which is a number that really shocked a lot of people. They didn't believe it was that great, but when we started we started interviewing folks, they'd say, well yeah, I mean I gotta get the report done it's at two o'clock, I leave the office and go home and work for four hours because it's quiet i don't know i don't tell my boss i'm going to do that i don't ask for permission i just do it so when we go into companies and say do you have a work at home program you get this yes no and there's no way you can really track this until you get down to the individual level which is what we did here And being futurist what we're going to do is tease you a little bit today about this other thirty percent of the in between i'm not in my assigned corporate office i'm not in a home office i'm working but I'm someplace else, and where is that? That, we believe, is going to be the challenge that you folks face in the future of learning how to manage people moving across all of those venues at will. And, and that's really what's, what's going on.
2: How many of you can honestly say you spend 40 hours a week in your uh, corporate office building? You know, we, we don't. We don't. And, and we had one client a couple years ago who said, it was talking about his office. I mean, he actually had a hard wall office. He was a senior executive. He said, it's really nothing but a big coat closet. I hang my coat up there in the morning, pick up a pad of paper, and I come back at 5 o'clock to, to pick it up and go home or 7 o'clock. Uh, and if you walk, it, 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 we, we, we first, we, we did, as Charlie said, we did the, the survey research on this, but we've also talked to a number of individual companies, and it's, it's been validated by them as well. Some of you probably know Bill Agnello, retired head of workplace services at Sun Microsystems. and You probably know that Sun was one of the leaders to to, to start moving to free address kinds of facilities and establishing satellite facilities, particularly in the Bay Area where commuting is just an absolute zoo. Bill said to us a couple of years ago that the the typical real estate executive is going into the board of directors and asking for capital expenditures to put up a building that he's only going to use a third of the time. He said, if I were a plant manager and I said I want to build an auto assembly plant with a capacity of 10,000 cars a day, but I'm never going to make more than 3,000 a day, they'd throw me out of the room. Corporate real estate is some of the most underutilized assets that most companies have. And we, we really need to think about that, and I don't know if this is the place to comment on it or not, Charlie, but we've got other places down the road, but... Part of what's going on, obviously, is the fact that we can be a lot more mobile today. We have the technology, we have the the Blackberries and the laptops and Wi-Fi and everything else, and we don't have to go to the office to access files the way we used to. When I started work, and it was in suburban Chicago, by the way, I grew up out here, um, my first corporate employer, um, I had to go to the office because that's where my files were, that's where all my colleagues were that I met and worked with, and and long distance telephone calls were so expensive that we had two watts lines. How many of you are old enough to remember what a watts line is? <laughs> remember? and we had to wait it, we Don't had to stand sign in line
1: up. to use it yeah. we
2: had to wait we had two, and we had to wait in line to make a long distance call and It was a long time ago i, I 'm a little gray behind the years, but not that long ago. I agree with you, not that long ago. Today, we have all these choices, and one of the one of the themes that comes through in a lot of our conversations is. Yeah, I can work anywhere, anytime, any place, but it's kind of turning into every time, every place. And it's, I think, partly because most of us grew up in a world where we didn't have to make those choices. We didn't have to set boundaries. I've got a New Yorker cartoon at home of a guy stepping out of his home office, kind of across the doorway into the kitchen, and he says, Hi, honey, I'm home. Well, you know, it's it's all too easy to go back and forth all day long if that's the only place you work.
1: So so how many of you folks have got blackberries? again? Here's a little hint for you to get out of this trap. Put the BlackBerry in the trunk of your car when you go home. (laughs) Do not take it in the house. Just put it in the trunk of the
2: car. and. The other day I um, mentioned with another group, I mentioned that I knew a couple that almost got (laughs) divorced until the guy agreed to turn his BlackBerry off on the weekends. And I immediately got challenged by someone in the room. He said, yeah, and when you turn it back on, you got 400 messages waiting for you. It, I mean, this is part of the world we all live in. And, and we're trying to, Charlie and I are trying to make some sense out of it, particularly highlighting what its implications are for workplace and facilities professions. One of the things that, that we have done, as Charlie said or pretty regularly is conduct some surveys. We did one relatively focused survey this spring. It was sponsored by Citrix Online. And these were the topics that we were asking about. Where do people work? How much time do they spend? Just like the, the last slide in, in various major facilities, but it, within a corporate office. How much time is in their office? How much time is in conference rooms? And so on. I'm only going to show you a couple of the, the, the results of this because it would take a long time to go through all of it. But it's, I think it's kind of interesting. I hope, I hope you do too. Um, first, one of the questions was how many do you have policies? Charlie talked about that a minute ago. And if you look at this, over 50% have either a, very, a f- very flexible policy or a flexible policy. Only 6% of the respondents actually prohibit flexible work. And we use that term as kind of an umbrella term for mobile, remote, all of those kinds of things. 37% kind of do, do, don't do ask, don't tell. So, you know, there's, we're making progress in terms of policy, but we're still not where you would think we would be given how long... Uh, many of these technologies have been around and how many people are actually working as if you, uh, the company had very flexible policies. Uh, then we asked about where people work. And just to highlight the slide, the blue bar is a, a space that's used more than 20 hours a week. The, the red is used you know, 10 to 20 hours a week occasionally, and the yellow is not used at all. Now there's still lots of people who don't use a lot of the kinds of spaces we're interested in. Uh, but about 50, only about 50% of the, of the respondents are using an assigned space on a frequent basis. A lot more people are using a home office at some point during the week. That's, that's one of the striking things. A lot of people travel. That's the remote corporate facility. I found it interesting. More people reported spending time in airplanes, trains, and buses than they do in uh, coffee shops. I mean, we, we first really became aware of this phenomenon... Charlie used to live in Northern California about, what, 30 miles north yeah, of where I live? 30 miles north. We would meet halfway in between at a Starbucks. That became our, our office. And we'd, we'd sit and work for, for hours at a time. I got there one time before Charlie did, and I watched a guy, the, the place, it was sort of mid-morning, the place was fairly empty. I watched a guy come in, pull three tables together, go up and order one cup of coffee, and within 20 minutes, there were seven people sitting around those tables with blueprints out over the ta- They were there longer than we were, over two hours. It cost them seven cups of coffee. That's, that's all Starbucks got out yeah. of it. And I'm sure that most of them had an office somewhere that was empty at, at the time they were there. So again, the, 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 the world today as we move around, we work in a lot of different places. We go where we have to go, either to be with people or to be quiet or whatever. Uh, and we just we find these patterns we 're trying to get underneath them a little more and understand more about why people go to different places and how, how they use those places. One of our, our uh, sponsorship meetings a couple of years ago, the group started talking about um, the, the fact once somebody reported they had seen several of their employees in fe- a fairly quiet cube farm. It was, a, it was a place where people a lot of people doing heads down work get up and leave and go down to the Starbucks across the street in a public facility. And they couldn't figure out, why are they doing that? It's noisy there. It's, it's, not, it's not designed as an office. Well, what it turned out, with a little more discussion, when you're in an office with a lot of people who you know and they're working on things similar to what you know, when they walk past your cube and they talk, you hear and you pay attention. It's very distracting. Or there's someone in the next cube having a phone call. When you go to a Starbucks, it's typically white noise. It's alone in a crowd. And lots of people, not everybody, but lots of people choose to work that way. So I think we all, you know, we need to learn to understand why people go to the places they do. And again, recognize that, uh, that they're going to do it, almost whether we have policies or not. I think, yeah, we have one more. We also asked a question about the different kinds of spaces inside corporate facilities. Small conference rooms are, and large conference rooms are being used by 75% of the respondents, although not, not you know, all week long, but used frequently is 20 hours a week. There's 20% of the respondents are spending t- half of their work time in conference rooms. Assigned space is next. An interesting number in the cafeteria, some of that is probably for lunch. But look how many people are spending more than 20, almost 20% of the respondents are spending 20 hours a week in the cafeteria. You think they're just goofing off? Charlie, tell them our our pharma pharma story. We uh,
1: were interviewing some executives once, and they told us that they all needed to have their private little cubes, and they didn't need small conference rooms, and it was a status thing to be seen in your cube, and they'd never go anyplace else. I went, I don't know, I don't think so. So as we were walking out of this meeting, they led us through the cafeteria, and here the executives are with us. There's four teams in a cafeteria, pull tables together, and they're working. We said, they never like, leave their cubes, huh? They, they, they've got like enough space to work. like
2: o'clock in the afternoon.
1: So I, don't, I don't know who these people are. I don't, You know, just mumbled. The idea is people will use spaces to meet their needs whether or not you tell them they need to do that. Part of the, the interesting issue here is we're not quite certain if some of these lower numbers are because that kind of space isn't available or it's available and they're not using it. That's got to be our next, our next cut on it.
2: What, one of the, there's an underlying theme here, too, Charlie, which I think is really important. Uh, as we're fond of saying, we, like, we believe in designing from data. Those executives in that pharmaceutical company had a belief set about where people were working that was totally out of whack with reality. I had a conversation this morning with the workplace, global workplace services manager at a pretty large, well-known uh, global company. And he's talking about the fact that they don't trust any of the survey data they're getting anymore because they have done some observational data. They have followed people around, watched them work, and the difference between what they, people say on a survey, and in most cases, honestly, they, they, people believe that they spend you know, X number of hours in a workspace. In fact, they're not. So it's really important to start getting a handle on what's actually going on in the workplace. Uh, start with, a, a, with, with knowledge about what's actually happening. Okay, what's causing all this? We've kind of talked around some of this already, but we want to take a moment and talk about these five factors which have, have become kind of the, the, the lens or the, the, the ways in which we see the world. The technology one is obvious, I think, to all of us. How many of you are using Blackberries? Um, and and e- e- email and, and cell phones now, uh, it's just a very different world technically, and the the sense of you don't have to be there to be with someone is is becoming much more the norm than it used to be. Globalization is partly a function of the technology. It's possible to do medical transcription, you know, halfway around the world and have it back an hour later, uh, and all kinds of other things. Uh, uh, CAD, CAD files are being moved around the world at the speed of light, et cetera, et cetera. But globalization has another really important L, uh, component or factor, I- impact, on this, on this world of work we're talking about. It's the reason why you've got to drive your fixed cost down near zero, because somebody somewhere is going to find a way to do it cheaper than you can. They either find, they find cheaper labor, um, if the business is information intensive, they can move it around the world very easily. You know, I think with what's going on with the the gasoline prices and the fuel prices, we may start seeing less global trade than than we're used to and than we think is going to happen because it's getting too expensive. What's what's the tomato story? The the which tomato? Oh, yeah, okay. I live in Arizona, right? It costs more
1: to move the tomato from California to Arizona than it costs to grow the tomato. So why am I paying a dollar ninety nine a pound for tomatoes? I mean, the the balance between production of something and transporting it to its consumer is really shifting getting out of whack. Um, like I said, I live in Arizona. Our truckers in Arizona drive into Mexico and get diesel fuel at two bucks a gallon. I mean, it's, things are really moving around. What Jim and I believe is going to happen with globalization, it's going to kind of even out a little bit, because we've even started to see some reverse tide trends. Some people are pulling operations back to the US, for example for a whole number of reasons, most of which got to do with quality of delivery. And you you get kind of this reverse flow. And we're going to get to that a little later. You Start thinking about what could be done, work could be done in the United States outside of major metropolitan areas that can be cost competitive with what it costs you to get things done in India and Asia, for example. Uh, I want to jump down to public policy. This is one of my favorite issues. how many of your executives and your businesses think about the impact that lawmakers have on your business? Okay. There's going to be a lot more hands in this room in a few months. Yeah. The, the public policy, and I, I'll just give you one example. Um, in the state of California, there is a law that, which comes into effect in the next year or so, which, when you really read it, says that businesses will have to pay a tax back to the state of California for the negative impact their employees have on the environment. So if you hire somebody that lives hundred miles away from the office that you tell them they have to come to and work, you're gonna pay for part of the environmental impact of that person driving their SUV that two hundred miles. Okay? That's an example of how public policy can start to impact what you do with your real estate portfolio. I'll give you one more, and then I'll throw it back to Jim. Um, American Disabilities Act, we all know about that, and how you have to structure the workplace to accommodate certain people with disabilities. If that scope of that law extends tremendously, what's it going to do? We heard of a case. This is a true story. A person claimed, because they had ADD, attention deficit disorder, they couldn't pay attention to their work because their workplace wasn't designed right and demanded an accommodation based on ADA to restructure their workplace because they're like me, you know, they're always looking around. Honest to God. So you start thinking about those kinds of impacts. You ought to have somebody in your staff that's always looking at public policy. So you know,
2: I, I was at a meeting uh, a year ago right here in Chicago with uh, some architects and some corporate facilities and real estate people, and we were talking about the, 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 the fact that the process by which a building gets designed and built needs to be fixed. It's, it's not the greatest. It's not the most efficient. One of the architects there was from London, and the topic, naturally enough, about, of leads came up, of lead, lead buildings, green buildings came up. He said, you know, here in the United States, you guys have lead. In the, in the UK, we have laws. It's that simple, in his mind. Uh, I mean, that's a real tie between public policy and sustainability. We also heard recently, and again, we keep coming back to this patterns of where people work and where they don't work and where they are and where they're not. We, we heard a, a, a comment recently that the average building, you know, buildings put out a lot of greenhouse gases. The people that work in the building produce twice as much greenhouse gases getting to the building as the building itself produces. Twice as much carbon comes from the commuting as from the building. That's something to think about. It's kind of like
1: building an extremely well-designed facility uh, in terms of environmental impact, putting it out in the middle of the prairie where two thousand people got to drive fifty miles to get there. What do you get? That's another true story. Great data center, no emissions whatsoever. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. Everybody's got to drive.
2: So you know, this again, I think is an example. What we're trying to we're calling for is thinking about this whole problem and these challenges holistically. It's not just about the building. It's about the, the work patterns, it's about where people work. We interviewed a CEO this morning who was thinking out loud, I don't think she's ready to do this, but she's beginning to wonder if the, if the company should be subsidizing employees for coming to the office to be with other employees. It's almost, she's thinking of it, it's almost a burden on people, because of the gasoline thing, to have to come to the office. Now, this company has facilities around the country and she's about to set a target that they reduce their inter-office travel by 50% this year, 50%. That means distributed work, it means virtual work, it clearly, you know, if I were, I'd, I'd probably rather be in the video conferencing business today than the building business. I mean, I think that we're, we're fine. People have been talking about video conferencing substituting for travel for 40 years and it's never happened. If you look at the data of, of revenues in video conferencing and, and air traffic miles flown, the two curves parallel each other for the last 50 years. They, it, video conferencing actually seems to w- make people want to get together more often. But I think for the really long trips, whether it's around the globe or halfway across or all the way across the United States, we're going to see a real cutback uh, in, uh, in travel. Well, oh, we haven't talked about demographics well, do we yet. Well, to
1: get to the next slide, I don't, well,
2: we, yeah, we'll get some more. But I want to just highlight a couple things about it right now. Charlie mentioned the 10 million jobs that are knowledge worker jobs that are going to be vacant in the next three to five years. Do you know why? 76 million baby boomers stepping out of full time employment. Something like 40 million in the 40 somethings age bracket. It's going to be a huge impact. on on a lot of organizations. And the smart ones are really starting to think about that and worry about it. I personally believe that sometime in the next two to three years, we're going to hear about a company that has a good product, uh, quality product, good customer relations, that goes out of business because they can't hire enough people. I really believe that's going to happen. Now, it's not literally going to be 10 million empty jobs because a lot of those baby boomers are going to want to work part-time. But part-time doesn't mean in the office full-time. That's huge impact for HR folks who are, have, have uh, only two ways to track, uh, to track people. Right, Charlie? Yep. A, a W-2 or a 1099. You're either a full-time employee or you're a contractor. We think there's going to be some real variation in the kind of working arrangements and relationships between people and organizations in the future. We also know a number of organizations that are already working with a lot of contractors, and they've got to provide them space. Somebody talked to us recently, they, they, it was a service organization that realized one of the reasons they were able to have everybody working out of home offices is because they were basically offloading their real estate cost on their clients because they were getting free, free workspace. Um, and there's some other things about demographics we want to talk about. We've got a couple more data slides, so we'll, we'll, we'll go to that. Um, the other piece of public policy... This is one of the only industrialized countries in the world where health insurance is tied to employment. And pensions are tied to employment. Here's the question. The, the survey, Charlie. Yeah. Talk about the survey. We,
1: we used to ask this. We don't. We're not allowed to ask this anymore, and you'll quickly understand why. We wanted to know what kept Dilbert in the cube. So we'd ask, why are you here? Why, why are you working for this company? I'd say well, health care. Okay. Anything else? Well, yeah, they managed my retirement plan, okay? So if you didn't have to worry about health care in your retirement plan, how many of you would stay and work here? You want to guess what that number was? Uh huh, yeah, the number that would leave was over 80%. So the HR people don't let us ask questions anymore. <laughs> Because as soon as they fill out a survey, they're down at HR going, no, can I roll my 401K? You know, they start asking these very embarrassing questions. So there's 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 a a public policy implication there also. There's a huge
2: pent-up frustration with large organizations. That's part of what this is about. And I think the next slide feeds right into that, Charlie.
1: This is uh, our data on the number of distributed workers, and they come in two categories. You need to know that. One category are people who work for a corporation, like Jim said, it get paid on a W-2, and the other category are independent contractors that are out there all over the place. They get compensated. On Just a 1099. Charlie, for those
2: of you who can't read the numbers in the oh, back I'm of the sorry. room, yeah. Yeah. The, the top line here is 30 million. That's 25 million. It starts at 5 million. 1990, it was about 4 million, and the projections are by 2010, it's going to be about 26, 27 million. People working outside of traditional corporate facilities,
1: and we've got some. You know what things can make that curve go up faster, and what kind of things can can bring that curve down a little lower. But that's that's pretty close. That's a pretty sizable market segment. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and the most of them are hidden. We have seen other pieces of research to indicate in most communities in the United States, 10% of the employed population is working in a distributed fashion. But they're hidden. How do you find them? They don't have to have business licenses. The companies don't know who's well, doing what. Some of them
2: are supposed to have business licenses.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I've got
2: friends in high places.
1: Um, you, can't, you can't track them. But 10% of your economy falls into this, this group. And we think this is another driver because that curve is not going to go away. $10 a gallon gasoline will make that Thing pop up like that.
2: Now, we, we also have talked a little bit about the workforce itself. And I, I just want to add a little bit more data in this. We, we all hear about, and most of us believe, that the uh, the 20-somethings are really different than the rest of us. They've got a different set of values. This is, this is drawing on research that's been done by Spirion Corporation over the last 10 years, and I'll show you some hard data in just a second. But the tradition, what they have come to call the traditional worker, Career is the company's responsibility. My father worked for one company for his entire career from the day he got out of college until the day he retired. Um, promotion based on tenure. You stay for security reasons, job security, uh, and a paternalistic management style. Pay attention to the organization chart, to the structure. And, and people who are like this, these traditional workers, reluctant to change jobs. Fear of change, fear of, of uh, failure, all kinds of things. Well, Sperion's identified another kind of worker. They called the emergent worker, who thinks of, the, of career as my own responsibility. Uh, promotion should be based on merit. I really resent it if someone gets, gets promoted just because he or she's been there longer than I have. Uh, they stay with the company in order to grow. Management style is much more peer-to-peer, much more sense of let's get things done. You know, go to the people that I need to go to uh, to get the job done. Ignore the organization chart, and changing jobs is advancement. You may recall about 10 or 15 years ago, Tom Peters said something like, if you haven't had six jobs by the time you're 30, there's something wrong with you. I mean, he was he, typical flamboyant Tom Peters. But here's the interesting thing. What, what uh, spirion has been doing is, is administering a survey that asks individuals questions that get at their values along these, along these things. And look what it's showing. 1997, when they started, about 20% of the workforce was emergent, 46% migrating towards this, this, the, the, this emergent thing, and a full third still very traditional. 1999, 2003, and their projections for this year are that essentially 92% of the workforce is on the, is on the right-hand column here, or almost there. And the really interesting thing about this is this, th- these numbers cut across all age brackets. They're na- it's not generational. I suspect if most of you took that survey, most of us would be over here. We you know, we're professionals. We're looking for opportunities to make a difference, to contribute. Turn me loose. Let you know, let me go and and I'll do the job. And that's the workforce that we're dealing with today. The real challenge for employers is too many management structures and management styles are here while the people are here. So again, this is this is just adding into this this dynamic uncertainty about the about the nature of work in the workplace the the, the point
1: here is if you don't have an organization that's managed with the emergent worker psychology in mind you're gonna be in trouble you're gonna be in trouble because that's where the workforce is going And, and as Jim said this is irrespective of age you can be 60 years old and be just as likely statistically to have the attitudes of an emergent worker as a 20-something can be a traditional... I mean, I've got a 35-year-old son who's going on 92. <laughs> Still, mom's trying to figure it out. But that, that's where it's going. And when we talk to the compensation people, they say, yeah, that's how folks want to be compensated, based on this new set of values. The old stuff doesn't
2: work anymore. And they want not to be compensated, but they want to be treated that way. And have, as I said, the, the opportunity turn me loose let me go and let me get the job done. And clearly, we've talked about technology. It's, it's not your father's work of technology How many of you recognize those new names up there? How many of you have a Facebook account? No. Not that many, but it, more than we would have seen three or four months ago. Um, how many of you use Skype for, for long-distance calls? Particularly nice when you're making international calls. Uh, you can't see this very well. This is Google and this is Wikipedia. You know, it's just, we've got tools today that are so different than what we had even five years ago. And when we talk to technology executives, they really struggle because people come in the door and want to hook up their technology to the corporate network. And supporting that and managing the data security and all of that is a, is a real challenge for, the technolo- for your technology colleagues again this, this is all kind of adding up to a perfect storm. I, I hope it's helping you I mean not a lot of this is new news I'm sure, but I hope it's helping you think about what's going on and why planning and managing workplaces and, and real estate and facilities has become so difficult again, to go back to our, our uh, sponsorship group uh, we at one of our meetings it was just I think it was last fall um, they started talking about the fact that most of the workforce and workforce workplace planning tools and techniques are pretty much unchanged in the last 30 to 40 years. 30 years ago, you were planning spaces for individuals. And yeah, you'd have a few conference rooms because you knew there were going to be meetings once in a while. But you knew you, you, the, the big question is how many people are going to be working for the company next year, and we have to, we have to anticipate that for, for space planning. Today, they don't know who's going to be in the building from one day to the next, let alone how many of them. And that is the challenge, I think, that you're all facing today because of that.
1: This, this slide is really the big takeaway. Everybody wake up, <laughs> more coffee.
2: Oh, and by the way, you're going to be able to get copies of all yeah. of this. Yeah.
1: We just This whole dramatic shift in the relationship between people and organizations and loyalty and whether you're an employee or a contractor or whatever you are, and also all of this new technology and stuff we're talking about, really what comes together and people... Want to and do work in many different places. They move around, and mobility is only going to increase because these things are shifting, and that's what leads us to what Jim and I believe is going to emerge, is a global network of places. It, it the the new word out is nomad. You carry everything with you. So okay, right now today, where's Jim's? Ba- no, I won't tell that story. <laughs> you don't want to try to pick. It up. I, I'm not going to pick his bag. i you know, there's a personal computer, uh, there's a cell phone, uh, there's a camera, there's a
2: PDA. Uh, there's chargers.
1: Uh, chargers, there's this, wires. this
2: thing. I actually, about a year ago, I, I emptied out my entire briefcase on, on my dining room table and took some pictures of it. There was almost no paper in it. I mean, there was some. There were a couple file folders. It, and that, that's real, it literally, a pain pounds. to
1: move that around for him to move from home office to something to an airplane. In a few years, all of that's going to be compressed into probably something you wear. All of that. And then you will be mobile. So start thinking about You don't have to have a cell phone, a PDA, a laptop, a, a BlackBerry. And God knows, I saw a guy in the airport the other day with three cell phones on his belt. I mean, come on. <laughs> so that's going to let us become
2: more dispersed. That's the whole point. Those of you who have read any of the CRE 2010 work that came out of Cornet will probably recall that the grand conclusion of that project was the, the future role of the workplace professional is to support work wherever it occurs. That's a very different concept of your job than worrying about what color the, the, the uh, fabric on the cubicle ought to be or, or you know, how, what the size of the cubicle. Is it 8 by 10 or 6 by 8 or whatever? So you really do need a comprehensive workplace strategy. Again, we really would prefer to use the word work environment strategy, but that's kind of a mouthful. Um, These are some random selections. These are corporate facilities you're looking at right here. I'm sure you've seen some of these kinds of things before. That's a coffee shop in San Francisco. It's not an ideal working environment, I don't think, and yet it's full. Uh, The technology and the expectations of the knowledge worker, I think, are what are driving the, the workplace and workplace design Uh, In the future as I just said the task is to support work wherever it takes place and one of the things we're finding in our work This has been really interesting unexpected not strategic originally on our part We'd like
1: to think it was
2: We're spending more and more time working with economic developers and local public officials in communities Because they're competing for talent just like your companies are or your clients are And and it's essentially a supply-demand kind of thing companies need talent Communities need residents they, they, they want you know they want people there to pay the taxes and, 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 and create a community, create a real community. And we think there's a really interesting opportunity for convergence around those two things. but uh, a survey that was done a year ago by an organization called CEOs for Cities that's very focused on urban areas, urban renewal and the health of, of, of cities uh, uh, found that again twenty and thirty somethings in particular, are picking where to live before they decide who to work for, and the who they work for isn't necessarily a local employer. I mean, that's the other part about it. again what this technology enables. Um, people are looking, uh, and we've we've done quite a bit of work here in the Midwest actually in the last couple of years with some communities, uh, and try to understand what makes a community attractive to people. Uh, and it, it's the obvious ones are schools and you know safety and. And, and health and recreational kinds of opportunities, but there's other things that matter to, 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 this, to this new workforce, if I can call it that.
1: Yeah, this, this whole idea of people moving to communities where they want to be and then deciding what they're going to do is going to upset the relocation business. They're beginning to see, wait a second, it's not about moving people around, it's about moving work around. You take the work to the people, not people to work. That's a real shift,
2: but that's what we see going on. But it's, a lot, it's not just about strategy. Um, it's the nature of the work, as we've said, from industrial activities to knowledge creation. The value in the economy today is produced by knowledge workers. And you can't schedule and manage creativity the way you schedule and manage parts, you know, being assembled widgets on an assembly line. Um, it's about creativity, it's about innovation, and the magic word we all hear these days, collaboration. Again, I talked earlier about we, we need to learn to make choices about when and where to work. One of, our, one of our clients today is asking, with all of their people so mobile, what's the office for? What is the role of the office? They're really doing some hard thinking about that and trying to understand why people come to the office. Part of it is purely social, to be with other people, to identify with the company, to find out what's going on. But that's not as necessary as it used to be. We're, we're working with one healthcare company that's moved a number of people out into work-at-home environments. Uh, these are clerical, administrative, non-exempt types a little different than, than most of us in this room. Uh, and what they found very quickly was that the amount of instant messaging traffic among the people who are not in the office has gone up astronomically because they're, they're staying in touch with each other, they're, they're, they're building connections, and they're also connecting in with some of the left-behinds who can let them know what's really going on.
1: It, it's gotten to the point where the left-behinds, the people who are still in the corporate office, will call these people and ask them what's going on. Because that network out there has gotten so tight, that's the, the rumor mill goes out first and then comes back. It's just lovely.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's another sub theme here that we haven't really talked about that I think is really important. We didn't have the survey data here, but we've seen it and we've read other organizations that have found it as well. You all, how many of you are familiar with the concept of employee engagement? It's the thing that people are talking about now instead of motivation, being yeah, how engaged, closely
1: you're connected to the company. How closely you're
2: connected with the company and the purpose and the mission of the company. We're aware of three or four separate independent studies now that are showing that people that do not have an assigned place in the corporate office are more highly engaged with the employer than people who do. Think about that. You want to improve morale and motivation? Throw them out of the office. Why do, you, why do you suppose that's the case? This is the interactive part. Come on, somebody actually answer a question. Yeah?
1: Because people that work away from the office enjoy their job more than people
2: that are in the office. People that work away from their office enjoy their job. Uh, I think that's part of it. They're, they're choosing to work. Uh, we, we see higher productivity levels in people who are working outside the office, which is not a great comment on, on in-office uh, management. Yeah, they feel... They feel here, over yeah. here. Yeah, that, did you all, could you all hear that? It feels like you're being paid to be in the office rather than to get something done. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the people we talked to about it said, "My, my, my company trusts me. You know They're paying me to get some, to do something, not to be there, but it, it really introduces a challenge for middle managers and first-line supervisors. It's a very different way of managing a workforce when you can't walk down the hall and see them. Yeah. Charlie. So what
1: happens if you don't have a strategy? We've got a couple of examples here of towns and businesses that didn't have a strategy. <laughs> and I'll tell you the stories very quickly. The first one up here didn't have a strategy to deal with a major climate change. That sounds scary. And uh, nobody lives there anymore. The second one, they didn't have a strategy to deal with the Industrial Revolution. That was a brick factory that was built about the time that steel was getting introduced to the construction world. So What do we need bricks for anymore? So they're sitting out there in the desert. And then this last one is one that failed to make the transition to the new energy economy. Actually, it was a, an uranium mining town. And then when nuclear power plants went away, what do you need uranium for? So those are just three examples of things that if you don't have a strategy, this can happen. So here we are. What, what, Where is it going? I think we've beat up on a lot of this already, but, you know, more distributed, more collaborative, more diverse, different relationships, social relationships between people and companies. And lastly, I'm going to come all the way back around that first circle we had, employment laws are going to begin to change to reflect this new reality. You will not have a choice about moving to the future.
2: Major speed bumps, we hear this in every organization we work with. I doubt any of this is unusual or new to you. Managers say, how can I manage someone I can't see? How do I know they're doing something? I know one organization that killed a, a work-at-home program when a new vice president of human resources couldn't find one of her direct reports one day when she was having a crisis. He wasn't answering his cell phone. She, I, I don't know if it's true or not. She thought he was out on the golf course or something. Uh, and, you know, some of that happens, there are abuses, there's no question about that. But workers worry about it too, when I'm not there, no one thinks of me. You know, they worry about promotion opportunities. But again, if you're focused on managing by results, setting objectives and achieving the results, and paying people for getting something done, that kind of that takes care of itself. Flexible work certainly requires major changes in technology. One, and Again, a lot of it's available today, but... We've worked with some organizations trying to move people into more flexible work environments, and they suddenly realized everybody had a desktop PC, not a laptop. They were an immobile company. It required a lot of effort and planning on the part of the IT organization. Uh, very few organizations are really making uh, effective use of good collaborative technologies. They're out there, but they're not being used very well. So what, did this, what, what happened? Remember that case study? Um, the first thing they did, uh, when, they, when they got the pushback and they realized they were starting to lose important people, they put together a cross-disciplinary task force using people from HR, IT, and, and, and corporate real estate. They started viewing the whole thing as a public relations change management problem, not just a cost-saving talent attraction problem. They, they put whatever kind of training and technology was necessary to support people who were working in this different way. They included, they set up focus groups. They included the employees in the process discussing it. Uh, they, they talked about the necessity for change. They said, we know this isn't great, but this is because we've been losing money for, for three years in a row. We needed to do some things. Uh, in addition, they, they went back very carefully and thought through which places they were actually going to close and which they weren't. They looked at where the affected employees lived, and they, they kept some places open that were close to where people... Uh, were living, uh, they redesigned the remaining locations to create much more of a, of a, almost like a town hall, a lot of meeting rooms, uh, and then they, they, they did a distributed work uh, trading program for the managers, but more than that, they started giving people organizational reasons to come into the office, periodically, not every day, not every day. One, one of our, our, our clients, when they were contemplating this, they said, gosh, what if we send them home and it doesn't work, but we have used the space for something else, and they want to come back. And what was your response, Charlie? They'll never come back. They'll absolutely never come back. And That's we, what happened. So we did a focus group a couple months after the first group of people moved out. The first question, when we said, how's it going, this one young woman raised her hand and said, do, I, do we have to come into the office? Can't I stay home more? I mean, and she, her productivity was up. She was viewing it as a real nuisance to have to come into the office. So, essentially what this organization did was treat it, as I said, as a change management, culture change challenge, not as a cost reduction it's Sort program. of a, uh, a point
1: behind the point here is this company was motivated on a cost reduction basis to do this. And th- this is a true story. It's a train wreck we saw coming. And, and we got a call, I think it was like on a Wednesday, and they said, on Friday we're going to tell 3,500 people they no longer have an office to go to on Monday morning and they must go do something else and we said don't do that well we gotta save money so he did it they closed all the office on friday afternoon took about sixty days and they started seeing people leaving the company and that's when they flipped back to do this what they realized later on they had to invest some money up front to save a bunch of money downstream and the bean counters wanted to just save the money and not invest so they had to go back and redo some things put
2: some money back into There's it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Free lunch, lunch. Yeah, that's And you all know than. that because you had to listen to us for an hour today. <laughs> um, here's, here's a final thought. Every one of you that went to college worked in a flexible work environment. Did the professor ever tell you where to write the paper or, wh- or wh- when you had to r- read chapter five in the text? No. They trusted you. They treated you like adults. And yet then we bring people into the corporate setting and start treating them like five-year-olds again. I mean, I, that's... Uh, there's just a little emotion in my voice. There's a little, little difference <laughs> between
1: elementary school and high school and, yeah, and we could yeah. go on and on on this yeah. one but
2: Well, and we have we have gone on too long already. Very quickly, uh, some guidelines. You have to make sure that the the tools and the and the, the access is there. Develop a flexible workplace portfolio, integrate the planning, targeted end user training for both managers and and the end users themselves, explicit policies and procedures. And explicit, tangible, and individual measures of performance. That's probably the most important line on that whole screen. And again, this will be available. I'm told it's going to be on your chapter website Monday or Tuesday next week. Ah, one more. Yeah. This is the last slide. It really is. All you have to do is learn how to be a magician, a juggler, and walk on water, and you'll be very successful. (laughs) Those are your new competencies. Uh, Wind up, just talk about the stage manager idea. Yeah, I think it's really important.
1: Jim and I employ a metaphor. If any of you have got our business cards, our title is executive producer. We employ a metaphor in our business called the Hollywood model. We try to act like we're movie producers, but it's not movies. It's projects that we produce. And this role of a stage manager, the person or persons who come in and set the stage for us to perform, is very, very important. I mean, you all know the impact of a lousy space it has on you. What we're trying to suggest here is folks in your profession need to start learning a bit more about how to be a stage manager instead of an order taker. I'm going to set the context for work, not just, yeah, you need two chairs, one telephone, and a wall outlet. No. Create the
2: work experience.
1: That's it's, really what that's you're That's what about. it's all about. That's the bottom line.
2: Okay. We talked too much. We got a few minutes left. We'd be glad to entertain a few questions. We will also hang around for a little while. We afterwards. have a microphone yeah. that's being passed around.
3: You have any data from the client standpoint? The whole presentation has been from the standpoint of the worker. How do clients in professional services perceive I'm not the sure companies? I, the I, companies that are losing the work? you sent all your workforce uh, at home, so now your company is physically, in square feet, 10% of the size it used to be. So now you're a small company.
2: I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm just not grasping the The, question. the, the, the difference between clients and the workforce. Uh,
3: I, I'm an architect. I have a small okay. firm. I have 20 people in my, in my office. If I send everybody home, which actually I do, but when, when no one is home, <laughs> when no one is in the office. If I have a client to come see my office and all the desks are empty, oh, they're all empty. that creates yeah. a problem, oh, a perception oh, okay. problem. Okay. Sure. So how do you do that when you are a well, huge company and you come to downtown and you have a five floors in We're not in talking about
2: sending everybody home. We're talking about using the space differently so that people, the people who need to be there are there. When, when your client comes in, you would have your, your, the people who are meeting with them there. Have you, have you ever gone to meetings in, uh, in Japan, in Tokyo, for example? I've done a lot of executive interviews at Tokyo a number of years ago. I never saw the executives' offices. They always came out to a special meeting area for me. Now, you're an architect. You would want people to see your space, I'm sure. Uh, We're not talking about sending everybody home by any means. We're talking about creating a mobile, adaptive work environment where people come and go as they need to to get the work done that needs to be done. And if it involves meeting with clients, they should be there. We're not talking about just letting people work at home. We sometimes get, get confused or, or, or accused of that. But that's not it. It's, it's create flexibility so people can do their best work in the best place at the right time. I hope that's a, an adequate answer. In your case, you may want to create
1: spaces that are more open and inviting to interaction with clients. You use the same number of square feet, but it looks different. I'm, I'm sorry. We've got some pictures. We don't have them in this presentation of architectural firms actually doing that kind of thing i understand what you're saying people come in and say there's nobody here why am i paying you all this money you know what's going on nobody works here anymore you, you can you can rejigger that and and you you can you can work on that issue but it's not the number of butts and seats
2: that's that important anymore yeah. okay, there's one in the back chris oh i thought i thought you had somebody back nope. there there's one up we got here. somebody over go, here go ahead go ahead oh yeah, they're, they're recording this, so they want to capture your questions. <clears throat> I have a question in regards to, to measurements and metrics. When you start to take a look at everything that happens and you talk about this network and this dissolution of resources that were arranged for the industrial revolution and the industrial side of things, and now yeah. we get into a network side, and now we still have to go back to well, is that an asset or a liability or is that... You start to look at generally accepted accounting principles and the metrics and the, the real reasons why people do things don't line up. And That's it's very sure. hard. So I'm curious to see what kind of work you guys have done to, to explore or <laughs> proceed
3: towards well, that we, type of we, we did a paper
1: solution. six months ago. six months ago called There's No Accounting For It that actually gets to that point. Uh, we maintain that unless you change a lot of the accounting principles to capture things like environmental impact and social impact in communities, you're never going to get this thing straightened out. And unfortunately, we in the United States do not have those systems. People who are making the best progress on this line are Canadians in Canada.
2: And the Swedes. And And the the, Swedes. There's a whole body of work around human asset accounting and... and, uh, uh, the, the stock market is trying, it, I mean, you look at some of the, the, the valuation of hard assets to market capitalization for information-based companies, whether it's Cisco or Microsoft or some or Google. I mean, the value is all in the, in the intellectual assets. It's not in the hard assets. We're not CPAs. It's hard to respond, but there is a whole body of work about that out there. But Anything pe- else? People know it's a problem. That's... Yeah.
0: Um, just wondering how you're tying in the sustainability, triple bottom line kind of ideology. Ideology that companies are uh, gravitating towards uh, I'm with HSBC and it's a major portion of the business model um, and effectively we've translated that into AWS um, your research was a point to is that, I mean what is there is there a fairly direct correlation between uh, sustainability initiatives uh, the current crisis around uh, energy um, and uh, the future of work
2: I think there is. I mean, part of our vision of the future is this much more distributed uh, physical environment, many smaller facilities closer to where people live and work. The evidence we've seen is that for individual companies, moving in that direction is good business. It it improves the bottom line. Uh, I I know you're one of the leaders. Uh, Adobe has a a corporate facility in in, uh, uh, San Jose today that, that is... One of the best lead certified buildings in the country. It's and they're saving half a million, not not I'm sorry, not half a million, four or five million dollars a year on the corporate facility itself. So it's good business as well as as ethically appropriate.
1: Let, let me take a crack at that. Sustainability is going to be a driver, and what we believe is going to happen is you're going to see a network of a lot more smaller workplaces that are geographically dispersed. So we significantly reduce travel. That my tagline here, sustainability it makes much more sense to move bites, not butts, that's a joke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tough. It's, tough. Time, it's tough, It's time, tough. It's time to
1: laugh, right, Good. You know, part
0: RJ.
2: Of, hi. Uh,
0: part of uh, the question that was just asked uh, suggests that there's an option behind the uh, sustainability side, uh, which is, as you mentioned, from a public policy standpoint. Uh, really, not going to continue to be so much the case, and uh, we've yeah. done talks on on the uh, the governmental mandate for sustainability, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and and your whole public policy, just to maybe revisit it for half a second. Um, you know, what do you see as the 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 time frame uh, for the the public policy impact? Really, mandating more of a distributed workforce. <laughs>
2: Uh, Ask me on November 9th, and I'll probably be able to give you a better answer. I don't think a lot's going to happen in the next three or four months, but I think it's going to happen pretty fast, RJ. Yeah, I really do. The
1: the California legislation kicks in in uh, late 08, early 09. Uh, Georgia State's got legislation already on the books, and and we're starting to see communities at at the local level starting to put legislation in place around environmental
2: impact I mean to come back to the to the question earlier about about measuring and accounting stuff it's not just about financial measures I think we're going to start seeing an awful lot more carbon accounting if you will and as we learn how to measure that and track it even if it's estimates at first it's going to start affecting and changing people's behaviors I think we're, I, a city like Chicago is pretty well positioned for this because of, of the train system I, I grew up in this area so I know uh, Communities out west where I live now, uh, you know, grew up after the automobile and they're not set up very well for, for public transportation at all. And it's going to be a real, we're going to go through some really rough times dealing with that. But we have to. So just start
1: thinking but, about very light jets that run on used French fry oil. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. That's Hi, I'm, I'm Pat Crumley with the Staubach Company. I'm curious to know what you all think, you, you made mention earlier of the whole, morphing of technology into a single piece of hardware or the coming together of all these different, you know, the web, the internet, the computer, etc. And one of the things that I find fascinating is particularly with the younger generation, at home the same thing's happening. And in fact, home technology is morphing into work technology so you have a single cell phone number you own for your whole life and that's your home and everything, which has a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think those implications are in terms of power of employee versus employer because now the client Everybody can always find the employer. You're never going to make a phone call and say, "Sorry, I'm not with so and so anymore," because they're gone, but their phone went with them. I mean, what are some of those implications? <laughs> well, I, in terms I, I of wish what, that happened. I hadn't <laughs> thought of that one. That's I mean, the management
2: implications yeah. are phenomenal. Yeah, they, they, you're absolutely well, right. Well,
1: m- most people today, really, the personal technology they own is better and more effective than the technology their employer gives to them. And Jim alluded to this earlier in his comments. Um, and I'll tell a story of myself one of my kids is a graphic designer he's got all his own technology all he wants to do is be able to plug in in fact he's not even sure he wants to do that anymore but that's those are his tools that he carries wherever he goes and it's like you don't want a desk and a computer no I don't need that I just need a password
2: the, the, the other issue that a lot of uh, that, that actually I think is not brand new but it relates to all these field people with with laptops that have the corporate assets on them, yeah. the, the, you know, your diagnostic tool. I, I talked to someone in a, in a large uh, retail f- uh, food manufacturer distributor a few years ago about this. He said, our field salespeople have, you know, the, the, the application that lets them do profitability analysis for the retail stores and show them where to, where, you know, how much shelf space to put our product in and all that stuff. He said, they're getting closer to the retailers than they are to us, and if they could take that machine and walk across the street and sign up with our major competitor. It's a real, it's a real issue, and it, again, I think it's one reason why engagement and motivation and, and creating a, an organization that is a more natural, almost voluntary association of people. Peter Drucker, uh, bless his soul, used to say that we should all pay attention to nonprofit organizations because they are typically uh, all the work is done by volunteers, and we basically have a volunteer workforce today because if they don't like what you're doing, they'll go next door. I think. You know, the technology kind of highlights that problem, but it's not causing the problem. It, there's other things, I think, that you can do to deal with it. All right. We're, we're, we're out of time.
0: Okay. I think that's, I think that's it. And can I uh, ask your help in thanking these guys? Jim and Charlie, thank you very much. <laughs> this is pretty thought-provoking stuff. I hope you'll fill out your uh, critique forms. Give us your feedback. What else would you like to hear? If you like this conversation... Um, we have a workplace community program that is part of Cornet Global, one of uh, one of the new initiatives where the community of people interested in the workplace gather together on a regular basis as part of Cornet Global's global summits, and encourage you to look at that as an opportunity to, to take this dialogue further. These guys and are active we're participants. We're active
2: part We've got of it. a really uh, good video of some people <laughs> talking.
0: Yeah, about I love that. <laughs> also, um, if you're uh, an MCR or one of the professional designees of, of Cornet Global. Continuing education credits are available for today. Please sign the form and back. And I think that's it. Hope you enjoyed today's session. We'll see you next month. And don't forget, 25th for the the U.S. Cellular Field event, 25th in the evening. Thanks.